It's, it's something that I feel like a lot of people don't have. And it's just so, it's like so obvious to me that I, I, I would like to be able to spread it more and like, and, and see people just realize like that being alive is such an amazing gift. And, um, and it's an every day is just like a massive adventure world of opportunity. Like if you start to realize it. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitruvian Podcast, a podcast centered around self-mastery. I'm your host, Zach Schenken. Today, I'm joined by Riva Melissa Tez, easily the hardest guest to summarize in an introduction to date. Riva has lived many lives in one, from toy store magnate turned venture capitalist, angel investor, freedom maximalist, reformed transhumanist, beauty enthusiast, reader, writer, and the list goes on. But at the root of it all, Rita is a clear thinker, curious learner, and fascinating mind. I'm beyond excited and grateful for our conversation today. Riva, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. I, uh, it's the, Our journey together started becoming Twitter mutuals, which I thought was a cool moment, at least in my universe. I just was reading through stuff. I went down your rabbit hole. Um, I can't remember who I was first exposed to or first saw your kind of work. Um, and then you're an interesting, you've managed to be somewhat public and somewhat private, which I think adds to the intrigue of your character. And uh, I was going through your rabbit hole, going through all the stuff you read or wrote, excuse me, on your uh, kind of website. And I remember it came across a, a Rand quote and I thought it was pretty profound. It was about love. And I tweeted that out and then you retweeted it, which was kind of like a cool moment. I shot a message over, hey, thanks for the retweet. Um, mm -hmm. Would love to have you on the podcast sometime. And then where I want to kind of open our conversation is you messaged me back kind of months later, um, someone out of the blue and you were like, hey, somebody sent me your podcast with Winston. I checked it out and uh, I really liked it. So I guess I would want to lead off. I've never asked this question before, but like what made you say yes to getting on this podcast with me? Um, well, I really appreciated the guests that you put on, right? Like I was like, oh, when I went through your YouTube catalog, I was like, okay, here are interesting people. Like the fact that you'd even know who Winston is to put him on the show, right? I think he's an unbelievably good writer, right? And he needs to have more of a platform. So I realized you giving giving people interesting, giving interesting people platforms, but also just the fact that I went through your stuff and it seemed very like philosophically and aligned with me. Um, and, you know, I feel like most podcasts I mean I get DMs to do like podcasts all the time but they're all like they all this is what I messaged you about before it's like everyone talks about the same shit right it's like tell us your life story and how you got into tech and it's like how many times do you want to tell that story and I watched your interviews and I was like you ask very thoughtful questions trying to get to like ideas and connect with people on a much deeper level so I thought you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna reply to this guy also he did tweet Ayn Rand which I didn't know you got it from me in the first place, which is even funnier. But uh, yeah, anyone who tweets an Ayn Rand quote is a, is an ally, I guess, as yeah, well. Yeah, of course. I I was exposed to Rand uh, at the ripe young age of like 13 or 14. My dad was trying to push capitalism down my throat. And uh, at that time, of course, it's kind of a lot for a middle schooler to digest. So I was very, I guess, resistant to the whole thing. And that was also somewhere around the time where they made that really poor attempt at a movie. Or oh, yeah. the John Galt thing, which he dragged us to. But I revisited Rand a lot later, like late high school and into university. And of course, I'm obviously struck by and inspired a lot by her work. Um, and I know you're obviously a huge 
advocate um, currently still working on potentially making a TV show? What's the update there? Well, so I, you know, I've just restarted. I don't even know how many times I've read it. Like maybe it's like my sixth time, but at the time, but I've just, my boyfriend gave me for Christmas, a first edition of Atlas Shrugged signed. So I was like, okay, well, I've got to read it again, I guess. So I'm just restarting Atlas Shrugged again. Um, yeah, the the TV show. So we wrote uh, myself and Mike Ma, who you probably know of, uh, you know, Mike is a genius and having never done any screenwriting before, managed to turn the whole of Atlas Shrugged into 13 beautiful episodes. Like it's just an unbelievable feat that he did it. And it's because he's philosophically aligned. If you're philosophically aligned, the inspiration comes very easily, I think. So we wrote all these episodes and then we like went around Hollywood. Now, the reason why um, we're, it, that's on a kind of back burner is to your point about the bad movies from before. I'll just say there's like an interesting legal issue going on between like who owns the rights and like what the future of Atlas of Atlas Shrugged as an adaptation should be. So right now the Daily Wire, so um, you know, the guys who run like Ben Shapiro and, and stuff like that, they are also doing like, I think a remake of, of the film. Now there's just like, uh, with that, it would take an entire podcast to go into like the the legal details why we put that on a back burner. But basically I will, I will restart the Atlas Shrugged project when I have the energy to fight for what I think was would we be what how Ayn Rand would want the adaptation like we've done it very we so before she dies she actually wrote six episodes of Atlas Shrugged as a TV show and I have them I'm like one of the only people in the world who has them so we use those as our like base to like write a very authentic you know version of Atlas Shrugged which isn't necessarily like what production studios want they want like a modern interpretation like we read this we read this one version that was, you know, pushed to us where like Dagny was an emoji app CEO. And I was like, Ayn Rand would just like turn in her grave, right? I don't trust that the Daily Wire are going to do a good adaptation either. But there's a lot of pushback about doing it authentically, which is ironic because like if you actually read any of Ayn Rand's work, you should do it authentically as the writer wants it. Um, so when I have a little bit more time to want to fight it, I will bring that project into fruition. It's just a when it gets like all legal stuff, I don't know if you're like me, like I'm in it for the philosophy. And when it becomes like entertainment lawyers, all this stuff, I was like, man, like I just will come back to it when I have the energy. But it's definitely so we've actually made a trailer, like we've done some stuff, like we filmed some things, but we're gonna that that will that will that will come to fruition eventually and it will be beautiful. I have uh I'm very excited and I'll be one of the I'll be making sure I get myself to a theater when it becomes nationwide but I have a number of questions off of just that project and I yeah. promise to avoid legal um I'm curious specifically like first of all and this will be maybe more meta about like how you conduct research but you are extremely thorough when you do your kind of per longer periods of research and you kind of go into these ideas and it's kind of this self-fulfilling rabbit hole and then it opens the next door and I've I've been I don't know when you communicate about your research is exciting to me because there's clearly like a just almost childlike curiosity that you maintain and kind of just follow and almost have play in something that most people treat as like an academic and cold pursuit most of that being like just how the modern education system is structured and kind of breaks people's love of learning however how did you happen upon those like copies like what is the research process when you're saying like okay i have the source text i've been greatly inspired by rand how do you find yourself privately owning this like resource i guess um and how do those other characters not also have access to it i mean i don't know if they do have access to it basically what happened in my case was that the idea of doing atlas shrugged is a, t is a tv series not a film right so our idea is to do a tv series kind of like mad men style 13 episodes 60 to 90 minutes 
the idea came out at a dinner party at Peter Thiel's house. Like it couldn't be, it couldn't be more like um, of a libertarian trope that the idea of this effort came at a dinner party at Peter Thiel's house, but that's where it came. It was during um, summer 2020, I think during lockdowns and like California was turning off its power. And we were like, this is just like Atlas Shrugged. Someone should do a good version, not the bad version. And I was like, oh, that should be my project. Like, I love this film. I have it tattooed. I have the my favorite line from Atlas Shrugged tattooed on my hand. I was like, you know, like if anyone's gonna bring this to fruition, like I should go off and do it. So like, I went off from that dinner and I was like, I'm gonna go, you know, and uh, um, Ayn Rand left her estate to Leonard Peikoff, who's kind of like the guy who has been the, you know, the, the guy furthering objectivism ever since she, she passed away and a close ally of hers. But like he sold the rights to this other guy who made the bad movies, who still thinks he has a claim. There's a lot of things going on. Um, but uh, the Ayn Rand Institute, I think it was, have like an archive. And I just like spend all my time trying, like I think people can tell that I'm very authentically interested. And I said, like, I want to do an adaptation to it that's very true to the text. And then in some conversation with some archivist, they were like, I think she wrote six episodes before she died. I was like, what? I was like, where are those? And they like went to the archive and they sent me them. And I gave them to Mike and we were like, okay, well, we should use them as a base to do that. Now, every, why hasn't anybody else got them? I don't think anybody else is trying to do it authentically to her work, right? They want to do their own spin on it, right? Like everyone wants to do an adaptation for it. So I think the reason why we got it is that we were the only people trying to do it like actually as she wanted. Like if you look at our script, it's like Mike and Ayn Rand, like that's way cooler. Um, so it's just the intention there. It's like people don't even try to dig, like who even knew that she wrote all these episodes? Like I'm sure nobody even asked. Right. It's like it's just that authenticity to like to like I actually cared. I wanted to do it as she wanted. And as I said that, someone was like, she actually wrote it. And I was like, what? That's crazy. Yeah, that is it is wild. And then I guess the second question is take us into a window into writing with Mike Ma. Like, what does your role look like besides just I don't I like I don't know. I, I can imagine that just being like a fascinating conversation in those rooms. And uh what is it like to write a TV show and what is your role in that? Oh, right. So I'm just going to say, like, I all the writing credit goes to Mike. So Mike is, I mean, if you read his books, I hope you have. Have you read Harassment Architecture and Gothic Violence? Like, I think he is a genius writer, probably one of the best writers of our generation. And um, he, we're deep friends, so I just, you know, he, he read Atlas Shrugged first. And we actually had a different screenwriter working on it first, like a more, like, um, professional screenwriter, like someone who'd done it before, but didn't love Atlas Shrugged. Mike read Atlas Shrugged, and I think you know, had the same takeaway that I did that he found he resonated with it. And then he was just able to knock out like 13 episodes in a few months, just having never done any screenwriting. Like he would just every two weeks, like send me a new episode. And it's just like, how does someone like Mike get that geniusness to like go write that? It's like, I think he just like, it flows through him. It's like a genuine, he read the book. He felt the call to action that someone needs to adapt this well. And like you read his, like he's never done any, every single person who's read it has been like, this guy's never done any screenwriting before. It's like, no, like he literally could just do it because he has the talent and the drive and the authenticity to communicate that philosophy. So like, it wasn't, we were separate. I was just, I was going around doing fundraising and all the legal stuff. Mike just came out with 13 episodes like written in a few months that were brilliant. So like, I have no claim to that credit wise. Really yeah, you touched on something um, really kind of profound, I think. Um, and it was kind of just a turn of phrase, but like you're saying, it flows through him, right? And I think what I've observed in many thinkers, and it's one thing I wanted to address with yourself, like coming from a very intellectual background, if you will, like studying philosophy, right? Like being an academic, being a researcher. I have this kind of working thesis that like all intellectualism leads to spirituality. 
and like uh, all of the most profound thinkers, writers, artists that I've come across will never really claim work as their own. Like the only way that they can kind of describe it is they're just like, I don't know. It came through me and I just like was this conduit. And you touched yeah. on something in a podcast. I can't remember which appearance it was, but you said that you have kind of re revised your perspective on what the mind is as opposed to previously producing consciousness. It's now potentially an antenna. I'm Open that up a little bit and talk about yourself as a creative force and how you have felt moving into potentially this very woo-woo space that we talk about like <laughs> collective yeah. consciousness or something. Well, I, you know, I had the same, um, I think I spent my, like I'm 34 now. I spent my twenties being like, I never want to end up like those people who like turn 30 and get really spiritual. Like it was like a fear I had. Like I watched this happen to lots of actually tech dudes that I knew and they would like make a bunch of money and like do ayahuasca three times and then like talk to plants and I wouldn't be able to connect to them anymore. And they'd like go off and do all this like circling. And I, you know, I was too much of like a, well, first of all, I'm English, not California. And then like, you know, too much of a rationalist. And I was like, what are these guys doing? Um, and then I like, you know, I, I think if you're not closed off to things as much as, and I think I was pretty closed off in my 20s, if you start, and I was a very hardcore atheist, but like, if you start paying more attention to the details, and it's probably what I was saying in the other podcasts as well, but there's like a little bit of magic, right? Like there's like a little way you can get into flow state and like crazy synchronicities. Like I know people can like, you know, rationalize all these things away, but I started to pick up on it a little bit more in my, in my late twenties. And then I, a book that really radicalized me like on the um, kind of uh, consciousness not coming from the brain is, well, there's two. One is and I highly recommend them. And now I'm going to forget the guy's name, but it's called um, uh, uh, the the key to upside down thinking. We can I'll send it to you, and then you can put it in the in the comments, right? But like it's called like um uh, the upside uh, way to navigate like upside down thinking. And um the writer presents like you know he's a guy from finance who like started to like also pick up on that there was you know like classical materialism didn't answer all of his questions and he wrote this book of him just like navigating through the research space and I really like this book because he started off as a doubter right he was like he was like you know consciousness comes from the brain materialism is real like all this kind of stuff and then as he goes through the book he starts looking like even at parapsychology like parapsychology used to be this incredible field right like looking at what the mind can do it was if you look at the list of people who ran the parapsychology institute so like were the fellows and stuff these are really big names in science like Einstein was involved like Tesla like all these people were interested like Alan Turing about what the mind can do they had these questions then sometime in like the 20th century we just decided that like consciousness comes in the brain and like the brain is this very like computer-like thing to try and build out AI right and it's like this has become dogmatic like if you say anything about consciousness now like if you say any kind of criticism about uh, consciousness not being in some neuron somewhere then everyone gets really mad right but there's not like there's an answer to it otherwise but yeah the, the guy to upside down thinking and then there's another book which is which is actually by Ben Goetzel who's um big AI researcher that's called the, uh, uh, like the, like the proof of psi or something like that. Like, again, I'll, I'll send it, to, I'll give it to you so you can link it in the thing, but reading those two books from like scientists who kind of go in to look at it. It's like, actually the statistical significance of a bunch of like, you know, parapsychology, like weird psychical tests, like some of those data is actually more statistically significant than things that we take for granted to be true. Like for instance, like taking aspirin to reduce your risk of heart, like heart disease, all of those things are actually less statistically significant if you look at the data than a bunch of like the parapsychology stuff in trials. And um, I just became more open-minded to it. So like right now it's like, you know, I, I I don't have like a view of like 
what I think the answer is. I just think there's a lot of dogma right now and like how people think about consciousness and especially made worse by this AI stuff. Like every AI engineer is like, you know, I'm just gonna make this sentient being. They haven't even thought about what the word consciousness means, right? Or what the word agency means. Um, and thousands of years of philosophy has been trying to figure that out. Like science hasn't figured it out either. So I guess my my current stance is that I'm just very open-minded. Like I don't have the answer, but I'm open-minded that it might not be in the exact school of thought that everyone's like appealing to right now. And and I, and I kind of just stay there in this like open-minded thing. Like I'll read anything. Like I'll read esoteric Eastern philosophy. I'll read like, I'll read, you know, 11th century medieval literature. I'm just looking, you know, there's a lot of wisdom hidden in different places. So I just like go out and look for it, but I, I just keep open is, is really how I think about it. Yeah, no, I, I think that, I mean, that's why that, that humility to just, and and like willingness to not get tied into, yeah, I have the right answer or I have truth with a capital T, you know, like I was raised Christian. And one thing like I've circled back to now reading the Bible again, but one thing that turned me off to like Christianity, the religion or the institution was that it just didn't feel very right that like all of these people that look and sound and live pretty much identical to me seem to be like claiming with like a hundred percent abject authority like this is absolutely true these are the rules of the game this is exactly what's going on and it just didn't hold up when you had like fringe and test cases but it also started to sound as i started to kind of like like you said poke into eastern philosophy and kind of with an open-mindedness look just for truth oh interesting like there's a lot of similar flavored things in all of these other worlds so why do we have to i don't know and part of that is maybe fighting like the evolutionary tribalism that like we need to tie ourselves to groups we want to be able to say like i'm part of the team that thinks the thing that we all agree on um so maybe it's protectionary in that sense but yeah i think the humility to search with an open mind i'm just going to put another point to that right which is that also the way that we're taught in schools is that there's either things that are right and there's things that are wrong either you know something or you don't know something and i think this is like actually like foundationally wrong right like belief is a spectrum right like there's not many truths that uphold over time for like hundreds of years they always change in context like i think a better framework of thinking about like truth or like a better epistemological framework to think about like justifying beliefs would be something that's like a little bayesian right like you have your priors right my current prior is like for instance that consciousness doesn't come from the brain it's like a prior like i can do that and like I can get new data, it can update me in different ways, but I think of it as like improbabilities, right? It's like, I like 30% think X, so like a current to my, according to my current levels of justification, I believe Z, right? And it's just not how you're taught in school. You're taught in school that like, it's either yes or no. And belief is like, not belief, but like that, you know, justifying beliefs, right? Like whatever we define to be true, like, it's just there's a lot of arrogance that it's you know binary and it's not it's a spectrum and I think once you start thinking of like intelligence or, or not even intelligence but when you start thinking of like um uh you know kind of your own world model is a much in much more probability like a much more probabilistic sense um it opens up a lot of room right because it's like it's like everyone presents like they know things I'm like you know nothing like you haven't gone and checked this thing out like you can't tell me where consciousness is like you read it in some book somewhere when you were like 12 like and it's just, it's that that I think causes the issue. And it's one of the reasons why I'm really angry actually about state-run education, because if you look at all education before, you know, a hundred years ago when the state took over, philosophy was a you know, foundational principle of all of it. Like epistemology was a foundational principle because you're meant to figure out how to justify your beliefs or like how to think about justifying your beliefs before you absorb the data, right? The data of the world. 
And right now we just go to school, we learn to absorb over the data and people think in all these binary right ways, right? You see that in politics and anything, right? It's like, it's either yes, no, black, white, like this tribe or that tribe. It's like the humility I think comes from just understanding that everything is a really complicated system and that things rely, one truth relies on, is dependent on a whole other class of other truths other everywhere else. And taking that with a much more probabilistic way is probably a better way to navigate the world. And if all of science thought like that, like it would be like a huge increase, I think in like, you know, valuable knowledge in like 10 years, right? If like someone just took the probability pill a little bit into their own epistemology. I agree. And I think what you're hitting on is the fact that like most people simply don't think this deeply. Part of it agreed, like the state doesn't really facilitate teaching people or even giving them the space to like learn the skill of depth of thought, like rigorously testing and approving their own belief systems, like forming an actual worldview that isn't just, and it reminds me of a phrase, um, like it's better to have strong opinions loosely held than loose opinions strongly held. And yeah. that's another thing for yourself, like you have kind of had this interesting arc where you started and you've even touched on it in this episode, like being very maybe dogmatic in some of those beliefs. And especially like, I don't know, like all the way from transhumanism to where you find now, like almost believing in God, right? Like, or even so believing in God and like embracing beauty and reading poetry and all these other things that are much more in that ayahuasca drinking woo-woo camp. But yeah. that's why I am impressed by you as a thinker, because you're clearly just curiously searching for truth as opposed to like, yeah, trying to like publish a paper and prove X, Y, and Z. Um, but you have touched on multiple times, like the state acquisition, and then also even the consciousness thing, like all these great thinkers. And then at some point it just became kind of, it just got very cold and binary potentially. I am a proud tinfoil wearing person, uh, partially entertaining, but I also think that anyone who does their own research starts to find that there might be some cracks in the modern framework for what history is. Um, so I'm curious through your research, also exposure to some of these larger characters in the world of venture capital, et cetera. How much do you think about the like counter narrative or conspiracies, if you will, both with like history? Cause you've talked about like, especially in your piece, every angel is terrifying for praxis. Like you talk about like revisionist history how much of that stuff do you think really is the way it is? And also how important is it to even, because I think you could spend your whole life trying to prove what is right and what is wrong in history. And you could try to find like the, the dustiest piece of paper that tells you X, Y, and Z about like who wrote what. How much of that do you consciously like uh, engage with now? Well, I, I I started writing, doing this research into like biblical man manuscripts last year. And then I have been writing a book about like, I've been trying to find time to write this kind of like, you know, what is history? How much of, it's, it's kind of like the field of historiography, right? It's like the the study of history in itself as a, as a field. And, um, and like one of the things I've just been so shocked by, by it is that like people build those world models, like the same thing that I'm saying about believing your beliefs, like the fact that people think of like the past history is like, foundationally true and valid right it's like history gets continuously written or rewritten over the time and um and not only that but like even if you go way back like it's even flimsier then it's like everyone's like well we definitely knew what the ancient greeks did and i'm like yeah really are you sure like we don't have many many manuscripts with like primary sources and not that the primary sources are necessarily honest either so it's like the same thing where like when you go into it 
it's not conspiratorial. It's just like the incentives of the field and the people involved and everyone and everybody in something that seems as, you know, friendly as history gets corrupted over time. It's just set between centralized power and, you know, like new platforms of where you write history. Like look at what Wikipedia is doing. Wikipedia is writing history like as we see it. Like I literally just watch it on you know, who, if you're a Wikipedia editor now, you're like, you have an unbelievable power in the world, like unbelievable power. So it's like, these kind of things have always been political. Now, what do you mean? Like, do I think very conspiratorially? Like, I, I hate this word conspiratorial because it's like, I don't know if really, like emerged like in the 60s around JFK being assassinated. That, like, if you doubted like the main mainstream thing, then you're like a conspiracy theorist. And it's like, I think like, it's just been given this name, right? Like if you question the narrative, it's like, how the fuck are people not questioning the narrative? It makes no fucking sense, right? It's like, it's like, if you're not, if you're not questioning the narrative, you're just like retarded. Like, I just like, I can't, I don't have any other way. Like, I don't use the word conspiracy theorist. It's like, it's like literally, I think it was created by the CIA. It's like, you know, discredit, disqualify people who like looked into JFK assassination, which is also weird as fuck, right? It's like, you know, like you should, everyone should be asking questions, right? And it's like, it's not that I think there's even has to do, like I don't take it so far that I think there's like some sort of deep state cabal that's like doing bad things like sacrificing children, I wouldn't be surprised. But like, it's just the fact that like, we should obviously question everything. And the, the reason why we don't question everything is because we go to these schools now, which are also run by the state that tell us not to question anything. So it's like, we're our own worst enemies. It's gonna take a generation to step outside of it. Like, I can't believe some of my most intellectual friends put their kids in, in government run schools. I'm just like, I would rather have my kid like running around in a field and like reading the, like a book a year than like ever having like a random state person like touch their heads, like their minds. So it's like, what do you mean by conspiratorial? Like who, if you're not questioning things at this point, especially like now after COVID, all these weird things and Epstein and stuff like that. Like I told the story of like Jeffrey Epstein to like my goddaughter. And I was like trying, she doesn't know the story because it's not so big in England. And I was like, you know, then he like died and then like the cameras went out and then also the, you know, the wardens were asleep and like, she just started laughing, right? Like she's 18. So she like, hasn't been programmed to like not, she's like, that's obviously ridiculous. And I was like, you don't understand. Like people in America still think this is real. Like it's so weird. So it's like, I don't know, like I'm on your, I'm on your team, I guess. <laughs> no, hundred percent. And I mean, it's why I kind of like am always kind of proud to, to own the tinfoil hat, the conspiracy thing, because people will throw stones, right? Like the second you start asking questions, they'll call you a conspiracy theorist. They'll call you whatever, right? It's part of it. It's is because it like fundamentally unhinges their world models. But part of it too, is that like they're protecting their camp and their tribe. But I guess uh, the second question is for you building your world models for you personally, like your worldview, your philosophy, your epistemology, how do you frame it knowing that potentially all of this, the bedrock with history is either revised or uncertifiable to some degree well, i just find it extremely freeing right because it's like it's the same thing about when you look at science and you realize like now like the academic kind of institutions are falling apart right like everyone's realizing that, like harvard is stupid and like run by weird people and like all this stuff is so crazy and like none of the papers replicate and like you know i've been criti criticizing academic um academic uh, institutions for a long time but like the same thing is like the, looking at history is not any different than looking at any other field like every other field every field is corrupt and stupid right now like it's just it's like it's like what would you what it's history is no different to anything else right like the incentives are misaligned like everything is politicized and like how do you build your world model like you don't i think that's probably one of the reasons why i'm really curious because i just don't believe anything that i've been taught so i'm just like well i 
you know, I, I don't know anything about like, I'll say to myself late at night, like drives my boyfriend wild. I'd be like, no, I don't really know anything about like the ninth century or something like this. And I'll just like go and like read bits here and there and blah, blah, blah. It's like, presuming you don't know anything. It's not like I'm like, going to presume the things I read and factually correct too. But like presuming that like everything, again, if you think of it in a Bayesian framework, that like you can start adding probabilities. Like this probably happened. There's a lot of references to this, right? Like if you read a lot of religious scripture, there was definitely a flood at some point, right? Like, like everyone talks about it. Like it's like you start to pick up on things, like that things happen. But I think it just becomes way more freeing when you realize like most of it is bullshit. Cause it's like, it's like how... It's like, instead of thinking, like everyone thinks that everything's already been figured out. So everyone's like, well, there's no point looking at history or no point looking at, you know, anything because it's already been documented and figured out. It's like, oh man, like, no, like you could totally rewrite the whole medieval period if you wanted to, you know? So there's a lot of low hanging fruit and I just find it really interesting. It's like, it's like, it's not a, it's not a, thinking that, ever, realizing that everything is like, you know, it's, it's not about being factually true or correct. It's just that like everything is, you know, up for negotiation is I think an extremely freeing thing. If you're a, if you're a freeing concept, if you're a intellectually curious person. I think it absolutely is and can be, but I do, I'm smiling because you're like so excited and positively skewed by this concept. But I know that even in my own personal experience, say you come up through some level of programming and you start to you know, you read your first conspiracy theory on Twitter or something, right? And then you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, tell me more about this Federal Reserve or tell me more about the JFK thing or 9-11 or whatever. And you start to kind of really realize that, yeah, the, the foundation is a little cracky. Maybe there's something else going on here. And it can, I think, depending on the lenses you're viewing it with, get scary first, right? Because then it's like everything I've been told is a lie. The foundation of my belief about whether it is something really massive like God or something that's, I guess, more material, like an event in history. How, how did you ever experience a period in your life where it became kind of like a dark night of the soul, I guess, for uncovering information? Or was it always, because I know like at a pretty young age, even with the toy store thing, like you were pretty disconnected from, as people in the zeitgeist now would say, like the matrix, I guess. But I don't know. I'm curious if you've ever navigated any sort of like negative emotion associated with going down those rabbit holes. I mean, totally. Like I have, the more I read about the US government, I, the more I dislike the fact that I'm here, right? Like I, it keeps me up at night sometimes, right? Like when I go and I think if I, if I read too much history about America, I'm like, why am I here? Like it's, there's a, it's, it's disheartening to read some things because you just realize how few things you can trust, right? Like I just, it's not that I, it's not that it's easy going to like be curious about everything and, you know, navigate. Like I remember the other day, like it wasn't, maybe it wasn't the other day. It was like a year ago. I was like, I, you know, I don't really know. Like in England, you don't really learn about American history. It's not like a thing that we learn about. Like America is like weird to us. It's like, just like Hollywood. That's it. Um, so I was like, I'm just going to read about like the JFK stuff. Cause it's fine. Interesting. And I like, read about the Kennedy family. Like they all died in weird ways. It's like after a while, I was just like, didn't even care about JFK. I was like, what was happening in this family? Like, it's so insane. Like even his, like Jackie, like marries like another person, like Anastasia's family. And like his son dies in the 9-11 plane. Like, it's just like, it's like crazy coincidence. There's just so many weird things going on. And it's one of those things where it's like, I just realized I'm also like a surf, right? Like I'm never going to figure out the truth. Like if I thought all these people on the internet like are convinced they're going to figure out the truth, right? They're like, you've got this answer about like Epstein, like how the Fed works, like all this kind of shit. It's like, you don't know fucking anything. Like you get all your news from like, the New York Times. You get it from, you know, government filtered things, right? Like you can't quite figure it out. Um, but like at the same time, you know, like, isn't it, isn't it, 
yeah you can you can feel dark right but like it's better to just go in go into it not necessarily trying to find an answer but just realizing that things don't add up and a lot of the times the thing that does make me feel better is that one of the things I've learned I kind of like figured out as I matured is that at the beginning you start to think like there must just be like groups of small people with like plans who are like doing things in the world and like at when I was younger I was like I just need to find the good people with the good plan right like I'll find them and I spent all of my 20s trying to find the people with the plan right and like nobody has a fucking plan and it's the same thing on the bad side right and you start to realize that like most of the stuff that happens is not from like people acting of bad intentions or being evil or like you know illuminati kind of vibes a lot of it's just like mass incompetency and then like mimetics right like people aren't really caring mimetic memes like 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 not not as in like an actual meme but like mimetic thoughts spread like the dei like all the just like diversity inclusion stuff and after a while like how do you end up with like Claudine Gay like running Harvard it's like it's just like natural incompetency like across like across and values just being you know disregarded along the way so I think one of the things that has brought me comfort instead of like getting down about it it's just being like you know a lot of it isn't ill intentions it's the high cost of often good intentions but from really mediocre people so it's like it's really like what you just end up realizing is like the world is like just run by really mediocre mediocre there's like a lot of mediocrity and there's a lot more like opportunity to actually go and do stuff um, and then when you think about it in that lens, it becomes like a little less disheartening, right? It's like, it's just a bunch of stupid people like making decisions. I have, I've definitely landed in a place of agreement with yourself, but I do think that that is fostered through a lens of self-efficacy, which I know that you talk about being so incredibly important. And I completely agree um, through however I got here, you know, combination of my upbringing, trauma, et cetera. Like I found myself being somebody skewed towards the self-efficacious, the agentic, like believing I can go into the world, like poke the world, make a dent, kind of like the the Steve Jobs quote. I think it's extremely important for many people to feel the same way. But like I just described, say somebody becomes at least just baseline curious and then they start searching and then it's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's powers that be. I'm just one person. It, I think it can be equally disheartening unless you have that like kind of the the magical switch or the right lenses to put on how do you think about distributing that the idea of self-efficacy or and or if somebody's listening to us and they've i don't know hit any of these conspiracies and maybe they're in a place where they don't feel like they have a lot of control how do you how would you go about like raising one's level of self-efficacy well that's a hard question um how do you increase your own self-efficacy well i think I, I, to my previous point although it's not maybe the most eloquent is that you got to realize that, like most people are really like like Again, like the world is run by extremely mediocre people. Like you think that all these people in positions and experts and stuff, like know what the fuck they're doing and like they don't. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of checklists and, you know, institutions and, you know, tick boxes and stuff like that. And like, yeah, like the really smart, crazy, cool people, like the Elon Musk, like the super high self-efficacy people. The reason why you can tell that they have high self-efficacy is that they can jump from different industries, right? Like Elon Musk can go from payments to like space to like also autonomous cars. And the reason why he can do it is I think if you look at the Elon Musk kind of like model of the world, I think he's realized like all these industries are just like full of like, you know, they're like dying industries of mediocre people just doing like repetitive tasks. And if you go into any of them with a high agency and like you try, like it's like, there's actually nobody trying to like do anything, right? And I think 
maybe a way for people to get that kind of inspiration is to read about the people who have high self-agency, have self-efficacy, like you said, like, you know, the Elon Musk is a great example. Like he obviously has very high self-efficacy. Like he doesn't think he can't do anything. And like, he's a true Randian hero. There aren't many of them, but I do think there are a bunch of people like that in Twitter, right? Like you don't have to be as big as Elon Musk, like people who just have authentic voices who communicate their own thoughts. Like sometimes like I feel when I read other people, like sometimes, you know, it's like, it's like in memetics again, when I read other people being very authentic on and if I, if I follow people who are, even if I don't disagree, if I don't agree with their views, but they speak authentically and I can tell they're passionate and stuff, increases my self-efficacy because I'm just like, oh, wait, like, why, like, why are we trying to be overly professional? Why are we not saying how we feel, right? So it's like the low level hanging fruit, I think, is to find people who you, who people respect that have, like, seem to have high self-efficacy or are passionate in an area that you like. And just following them, it's like I try and look for people who are authentic and have high integrity. And I don't really care so much about what their views are, right? Because like that's kind of bit is subjective, and like people can differ. But I do enjoy finding people who like present arguments well and like have that confidence, right, and that authenticity to like express their views. And like podcast, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but like you know, podcasts. You know, other friends have told me like I love. I have the only one of the podcasts I do listen to, like apart from that, I've now listened to yours. Is is Robert Breed loves like what is money podcast? Like he has a, he has all these great guests talking about philosophy and stuff like this. And it's like you listen to you just go and you can find those people. It's probably people like that in people's like immediate families and communities, right? You can say like who in my network has the highest self efficacy. And the way you can test that is like, do they like, do they go after their goals? And are those goals ones? But first of all, like realistic, and like, are they able to achieve them? Like, look for the people who are able to execute around you, right? Like, I grew up in a small town in England that made socks. Like, nobody around me was like executing very well. And I came to San Francisco, and I was like, oh my gosh! Like, everybody here is just like, I started this company, this company. I was like, okay, I'm gonna move to San Francisco, even though I'm the dumbest person in the room. I was like 22. I was like, because I just want to be around super high self efficacy people. And like, I think that's the same for everybody else. It's like if you want to learn that as a skill, go put yourself in that environment where other people have it. It can be in your immediate community. It could be maybe moving to a different place. Like New York is more high self-efficacy than probably than like, I don't know, even Los Angeles, right? Like people are there, you know, being ambitious and fighting and fast paced. And it's like, you just can go and, and like be in that environment. I think like energetically, like you put it, pick it up. So it's just, you got to set the intention to like be around that energy, I think. I completely agree. And, and then there is like, it's almost a, a bit of a paradox with self-efficacy because there's you want to think that like if you're one of those characters you can create the environment right because you're so high self-efficacy like i can fix it but it is it's like you versus many forces and you might be able to like twist and conform the environment with one person but if every person around you is consistently shooting down your dreams and aspirations or making you feel like the weirdo because you want to do whatever right on twitter start a venture capital fund whatever it is um it, it is much better to just extricate yourself from that and plant yourself where the soil is fertile. Totally. And like, sorry, yeah. I just, I just interrupt. It's like, you know, I, I, I moved to San Francisco one for that reason, but like, you know, people's immediate family, like all this stuff is important. Like you are, I mean, it really radicalized me in the last few years just to think about like, you are like the sum of the five people around you, right? Like, they're going to have the biggest influence in your life. Like who talks to every day. And when I realized that I was like, uh, like, do I want the qualities of the people, the five people closest around for me? And it's like, you might not be friends with Elon Musk, right? But like, you might have a really ambitious person in your network. And it's like, you should invest more in like being friends with that person, right? Or like trying to find like, or going to meetups and groups and doing that. It's like, in the last few years, even though I'm in my mid thirties, like it's late time for me to do it, but I really try to refactor my friendship social group to be like, I want, what are the qualities I'm looking for to try and gain as a person? And like, how do I build that like 
you know, chest of people around me who already have those skills that I respect and I can mind. It's not about using people as a means to an end. It's more about like, you know, just reminding yourself that like your brain via osmosis energetically picks up the characteristics of the people around you. Like at the time in my late twenties, I was hanging out with a bunch of women who like talked about shoes all day. Like I did like that, but after a while I was like, I don't know if this is where I want to be in my life. So it's like, I just chose to hang out with more philosophical people and it shaped me better. So it's like this very low level hanging fruit, I think that like people just like ignore or like they haven't, hasn't like clicked into their minds so much. What are some of those things that you're trying to foster within yourself through other people right now? Um, What am I trying to foster? Well, I'm trying to be better at communications. Like I know that people think like you think I'm a good writer. Like I guess I am, I'm, I enjoy writing and I find like an easy, you know, medium of discourse. I don't like speaking. Like I, I actually like have an issue with it. Like I don't like doing it. Like I haven't done many podcasts. Like I think I told you like at the David Perel podcast that came out, like we filmed it like three times, right? Like I don't enjoy it. So I'm practicing it, right? Like I'm doing more, like I'm, I'm, I'm doing these kind of things. I'm trying to be around people who have, who I respect. Like my boyfriend has unbelievably good communication skills. And I'm like, I watch him with his daughter, which is such a weird way to learn. And I like learn things from that. And like, another thing that I want to learn about is like certain topics, right? Like when I was really interested in my pathogen research, I spent a lot of time hanging out with like bio people and like weird like you know I was doing weekly calls with like pathogen researchers in other parts of the world because I just want to learn what they knew right now I have a very similar thing that like I really want to catch up with crypto like I'm a little bit behind DeFi summer was good to me I kind of took a year out and right now like I'm trying to find people who like you know like I've, I've been working and being around people who like know things that I don't and I go in with that community that like I, I actually just want to like learn some of the things that are in their brain right like industry wise so that's one thing. And then the, another thing is that I really respect like like a mentor of mine, like I talk about a lot of Jim Keller, who is now a 10 star in Atomic Semi, but he used to be in Intel. Like people who built good family lives, right? Like how many families do you like go hang out with that like a really strong, healthy family that you want to like emulate and build and recreate? So like one of the things I'm trying to do in my 30s, like look for families or like couples or things like that, that like I respect how they have their like, you know, family, you know, structure and they seem happy and that their, their kids are well-rounded etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's like i'm also trying to like build up better relationships with that and a friend of mine had a really interesting talk like a thing that seems a little bit clinical but i actually really liked it he said that at the beginning of every year he writes his top 20 friends right like the people that he actually like values the most and him and his friends all share those lists with each other which is like crazy for most people to think right like he does this and the reason why he said he does it is that he's like he you know like sometimes we're quite passive with our social time right like we'll be like you know, it's a weekend, we go for the friends who are nearest, whatever. And if you write that list and you make it kind of explicit, like here are friends that I really respect that I don't spend much time with, you start to realize when you have free time, it's like, you know what, I'm going to go on a trip and like go find that friend, right? Or like make sure I invest in that friendship. Because sometimes, especially as you get older, like you can go a year without seeing someone, which is crazy. So it's like, you make this list, you make it explicit, like what are the qualities these people have? Like, do you, who do you want to invest time with in a friendship wise, in you know, in the social, in social settings? And you make it explicit and you just like start to set the goals like hey i have a free weekend there like what 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 trip what what friend should i bring on this trip right like what who do i want to have like what am i thinking about right now like okay i'm thinking about like you know you know sovereign individualist style libertarian philosophy like which friends should i bring together and say like hey let's take a weekend away and like debate this for three days right it's so, like it's just being much more intentional with my time i think like a lot of people in their 20s are like, you know just end up like just hanging out with your friends right like anyone that's around that you grew up with like I just, I like, I don't, I don't care so much about familiarity so much as much as I, I care about, I guess, le learning things. I don't know if that's good. No, I, I mean, I think the important thing is that you actually know yourself and you're willing to express your desires versus like falling victim to whether it is memetics or just general social pressure to be like, 
yeah, I'm just doing the thing that like the crowd's going to the place and we're going to talk about whatever happens to come up versus yeah, like, I yeah, I'm it. seeking specific information or knowledge or wisdom or skills or family unit structure. So I'm actually going to seek it out. But I do think that there there's an interesting duality that arises as many things in life where there's kind of a, like you, when you were younger, putting yourself in, in San Francisco, there probably wasn't a position where you had the sway in a lot of those rooms, but you were putting yourself in a place where entropy and magic is likely to happen. So I guess even now, how do you ride that line between maximizing for the chance of something serendipitous happening to you, but then also being like, I guess, strict and organized with how you're allocating your time intentionally? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, firstly, like on the serendipity, entropy, magic comment, right? Like, I think one of the strongest ways that like young people can kind of, you know, find their networks is like one, like, like I didn't have anything to say for myself when I'm to San Francisco. I just made sure I was really useful to a lot of people. And I asked good questions, right? I was like, okay, like, how can I help these people? And like, I'd go to different events, like longevity events, stuff like this. And I'd be like, how can I help? Like, I just like literally volunteered. Like I volunteered at so many, I literally just volunteered last month at a $3 billion crypto company. Cause I was just like, I want to help you guys. I like, do things right. Like, it's like, it's like, there's a lot of value in just like giving people your time and like everybody needs help on different things. So like a lot more of the world is open to people than they realize. Right. It's like, just go offer your time. Like, you know, everyone thinks like they got to be paid, but sometimes I'm just like, I want to learn something. Like I'm just going to go help out on this project or do something like, like this and like set these kind of goals. So like, yes, you know, you, you, you can keep, you can keep this, there's some intention in that stuff, but on the, I guess like I'm intentional with who I spend time with. I think the thing where I bring in more of the chaos and the entropy and stuff like that is like, like things like what we do, right. It's like, you know, anybody can like go to a pub or like host a dinner party. We don't get deep, right. Like you don't get really deep when you do these kind of things. And then one of the things I'm just like, I'm, I'm organizing right now is like, you know, trips with my friends, for like three, four days, like we go to a beautiful place or a weird place, or like we go to Paris or we do different things. But it's like, you know, the chaos, like the change, like, like we, I took 15 of my friends to Istanbul for my birthday, right? It's like, we're suddenly in this, you know, Oriental Middle Eastern place, which is like half Europe, half Asia. And like most of my friends have never been there before. So like, it was like a new place for us to like discuss philosophy and life and all of these things. So like, and I'm not saying that everybody has to travel around the world to do these crazy things, or you don't have to do that. But it's like even just camping, right? You can just go camping. You can you can change like the setup of like the experiences that you have with people. Like one of the things that me and my boyfriend noticed is that every time we plan a trip, we plan a trip. Like and sometimes I like to like plan lots of things. And even though I like I love serendipity, I I, I find serendipity in, like the in between things of like maximizing like surrealism, right? I'll be like, okay, we go on this trip. Let's I'm gonna find like the weirdest restaurants, the best art galleries, all these kind of things. And it's like, actually, like you set those intentions and you start walking to one. And then when you're on the way to one, you might notice there's a cooler thing over there that you end up going to, right? But you set the intention to do something and like you might not end up going to do exactly what you wanted to do. But like there's 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 freedom. Like I try, I, I, like, if, like for instance, I don't mind if my plans change. Like if I go out with my boyfriend in the evening, we'd end up changing our plans. It's like some people are like, oh, if I've got this plan, I've got to stick to it. It's like, you can go where the flow is, like where you feel you want to go kind of energetically or where you get spiritually pulled to go. So it's like, you make the plans, but you don't have to stick to them. You know, like you don't have to like keep with them all the time. I had a previous guest of this podcast, another Twitter writer, uh, Hua Fury. He was talking, he brought up something about travel because he's like very bullish on traveling a lot, like the nomad lifestyle. And I think my, like my age people came up in the generation, like this, like wanderlust, like go travel the world, find yourself just in a very like aesthetically romantic sense. But I don't think there was like a lot of 
meat on those bones. And so I was never personally like called to like, oh, I want to travel the world, but I have done a fair amount of traveling and it's been incredibly personally expansive. And he pointed out that you can think of yourself as like a point on a Cartesian plane and simply by moving the same point to a different location, it's actual like principles and qualities change simply by moving it on that plane and you're the same way. So simply just moving your body into an uncommon place that it's not familiar with, whether that is camping in your local area or plane ticket to the other side of the world, like it forces your brain to think differently. You're, you're literally engaging with your environment differently. And I think that's where we get a lot of those like really expansive creative moments. 100%. And, and, and another thing that I would also stress is like more people doing things on their own, right? Like everyone does, like we've just been talking about doing things with friends, but one of the first international trips I ever did was when I was 18 and I got my student loan, which is obviously meant to go on my university degree, but I didn't. I just took a, a one-way one flight to New York from London. Like I'd never been to America before. And I like couldn't even afford to come back. I had no idea where I was going to stay. I was like, did it as like a challenge. I was like, I'm just going to go there and like figure it out, right? Like I had barely any money. And I just went there, like I messaged every person I knew at the time. I didn't have a big network. And I found out someone's, someone's aunt, like let me stay in like a room and like I paid a little bit of money and I ended up like just I was like I set myself this weird challenge I was, like, I'm just gonna go to a place and like see what happens right and it's like it's a crazy adventure like I made all these like random friends I had to work to like get my pet my pay under the counter to like get my pay for my flight back it's like it's like you should people should do more like adventures on their own right like all pretty much all my favorite adventures until my most recent boyfriend have been on my own like I would just go and wander around, like go to a random American city and like walk around it, like go sit in a hotel bar and like talk to the oldest person there. You know, there's a lot of low level hanging fruits, like just go have an adventure. And I think most people don't, can't have adventures on their own. And if you can't have adventures on your own, how do you expect to have all these adventures with other people, right? Like I am my own best friend. Like I, one of the things I hate is I hate being around people all the time. Like I'm like, I need to go off and do my own thing. Like I go on hikes. Like this is such a low level like hanging fruit for adventure. I go, I leave my house. When I'm in LA, it's very pretty. When I'm in Las Vegas, it's very surrealist and gambly. But like, they're both very, you know, unique locations. And I just walk. Sometimes I use this app. I don't know if you've heard of it, Random Nautica. It just randomly selects you points, right? It just randomly sends you like a geolocation. It says like, you know, they picked this place to go. And then sometimes I'll just like randomly walk in a direction for like six miles. And I'll find like weird architecture. Or I'll see an interesting bird. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you have to like fly to the other part of other other places in the world like I think that's obviously advantageous but until you can find beauty in the small details and the areas around you those long distance trips aren't going to make any difference either right it's like unless you can walk out your house like I walk out my house I feel ecstatic like I'm like wow look at these flowers look at all these things like the nature is different today like this like I look into people's houses like I like snoop a bit you know I'm like what I was like what's this interior decor in Beverly Hills everyone has exactly the same it's like if when you start paying attention to like small local areas around you like you start to realize that everything's an adventure like the other day I got so excited my boyfriend was like why are you excited I was like oh we're leaving the house and he was like where are we going and I was like oh I don't know I was just so excited to go outside like it's like I don't know maybe I, I don't feel like a lot of people have that energy but like if you can get it and cultivate it then like honestly the world is your oyster yeah and I think a lot of it as sad as it may be it, it's really more of a recovery or a remembering because when you look at a child they do that by default, right? Like they're enamored by a long strand of grass or like falling down, you know, like something very mundane. And and they're just like giggling and laughing and crying and, and just like their eyes are wide open. And something about, I mean, there's a lot of people that write about it. And again, we've talked about the formal education system. There are 
both institutions that beat it beat it out of us but tragically it's like sometimes it's the people that love us the most too you know because like they have yeah. stuff hammered into their heads so they say like hey you shouldn't crawl on the grass because there's bugs or worms or whatever and then slowly you start to like get your reality boxed in and things become a lot less shiny um so i do think it is it takes a level of intention to try to relearn that ability yeah, it takes a level of intention and it just takes like, you know, I, you know, sometimes I do this thing. It's like a thought experiment, right? Where I close my eyes and I imagine like I'm an alien or something. I've just like come to earth and I open my eyes and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Like everyone's like, have we found water on Mars? I'm like, yo, I get like a bottle of water from the Medici Foundry Spring, put in a glass bottle and sent to me. I'm just like, yo, this shit is crazy. Like it's like everyone's looking for aliens. Remember those like Mexican, like the Mexican government brought out those like weird aliens. It's like, I still don't like understand what the fuck happened there, right? It was so weird. They brought these Mexican aliens. I'm like, yo, have you guys like seen a rabbit? Like it's like, like <laughs> the animals around is like pretty weird. Like there's all this stuff. It's, it's just like people have just, they take it for granted, right? Like you see it so much over time that you're looking for novel things. Everyone's looking for water on Mars. It's like, I, I'm pretty impressed by this, you know? It's like, it's like everyone's chasing novelty, but taking for granted the things immediately around them. And I, I think it's just something that people have to practice, right? It's like really thinking about it. Like, like sometimes I just like put my hands under running water and I think about how like for hundreds of thousands of years, nobody could even imagine having hot running water accessible at any time, right? Like it's incredible. And when you have that and you start to really think about like, how did this end up coming here? Like my boyfriend complained about the post office like the other day and I was like, Think about, like, I know it's terrible to go to the post office, but, like, remember how mail worked hundreds of years ago? We went from horse to horse to horse. So, like, you know, it took forever. Like, you had to, like, like, even the fact that we have email now, like, when you start to, like, really think about complex systems and history and, like, what's accessible now, it's like, okay, like, if you understand that running water is so precious and, like, amazing and, like, a modern invention, then taking a bath is, like, an ecstatic experience. I'm like, there's bubble bath, there's hot water. It's like, it's just, there's so many things around us that I think most people just really just aren't paying attention to. And it's just, you have to slow down and like, think about it, right? Like think about everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis, like evaluate it instead of just being robotic and going through the system, right? It's like, take a shower every day. Next time you have a shower, when you get in it, be like, wow, like for hundreds of years, like King Henry VIII smelled like crap, right? Like these are the richest people in the world. They didn't smell good. They didn't have access to hot running water all the time. It's like, they would fantasize about something like this. And like, I think about it and I have my shower and I really try and enjoy it, right? And I really try and like take pleasure in it. And I think like that is something that I, you know, res like Rilke, the poet I talk about a lot, like definitely things like that. Um, Salvador Dali, like I had this Salvador Dali quote written on my wall in college that said, every day I think I will wake, every day when I wake up, I think I will die from an overdose of satisfaction. I mean, what a great quote, right? He's just like waking up and feels like that. But like, that's how you should feel because like every person who's dead, like wishes they were alive right now, having access and the opportunity that you have when you wake up in the morning, right? One time I stopped eating gluten and my friend Rob Reinhardt, like he was the guy who started soiling, he's a very eccentric guy, but he said to me, he's like, Riva, people are dead. And those dead people, like they just dream about eating bread. They just want like soft bread. They're like, how can you cut this thing out of your life? And I was like, he gave me a point, right? Like it was just like, you know, it's just people take things for granted, right? Like I want to try everything a little bit. Yeah. And I think to actually be able to get to the place where you are now short of like some sort of psychotic snap or like a, you know, psychedelic induced uh, realization. I do think people, like you said, you have to kind of earn your way back to it or like remember and desensitize it. I hate the like kind of mental masturbation around like dopamine detoxes because 
they come yeah. right back online and tell people about it afterwards. So it's like meaningless anyway. But I do think that periods away from technology, like lowering the amount of inputs going into your brain is the only way that you're going to be able to have the like neurosensitivity to smile at a sunset or a tree or, you know, taking a walk and feeling the breeze on your face. Um, so that's definitely something that like I would recommend and have like for last year for my birthday, I did a five day fast and silent retreat. And like you talked about being alone, I'm somebody who's spent a lot of time thinking in my own head. So like I've been kind of a lone wolf type, but when I like, you know, day three or day four, I'm sitting there, you know, just thinking, thinking, thinking. And I realized that up and until that point at 24, like I don't know that I have ever been in a room or like gone more than two consecutive days without seeing another human alive. Like, and that was like a very crazy realization of myself. Cause I think I do spend a fair amount of time alone, but then those alone times are quickly contained by going to the gym or talking to a friend or whatever, you know, like it, maybe it's four hours alone in your room working, but that same day you're seeing, you know, 15 people after you're playing a sport, you're doing all these other things. So true, true solitude, true, true freedom from stimulation is like maybe the rarest commodity. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I feel like a lot of people who, you know, try and look for love and relationships and stuff, like people can't sit alone. Like they can't like be with their own thoughts for a long period of time. They're either with someone or they're on their phone. Like everyone's always doing something, right? And it's like, you should practice and not everybody should, but like uh, something that I, I, when I was living in San Francisco and when I first moved and I started to like work and I like, make a bit of money and do stuff and I was so social. Like one day I just rented this house i can't even drive but i rented this like house in joshua tree that was just a place i would go to completely alone i didn't i invited like two friends to come stay once but i had this place in joshua tree where i would just go it was so cheap it was like you know like it's 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 not like prime property it's not even in joshua tree it was like really in the middle of nowhere and i would just get a, a fly to palm springs get some groceries for like a week or two and i would just go there and i'd be i wouldn't speak to a single person like I, and I didn't like, I just completely zone out. I would like read and do stuff. And it was such a meditative experience, right? Like by the end of it, like you start to, like a lot of the concerns that are like in your daily busy life, like fade away. Like I would love, like I, it's been on my list for a long time to like actually go and really do like a silent retreat. And I'd love to learn more about your, your experience there. But it's just like even more low hanging fruit, right? It's like just going on, like going on trips on your own, or, like renting a house and being alone for a couple of days and like reading. And I, and I don't know if it's the same thing. Like I'm curious about it from like a meditation, like from a retreat standpoint, like a silent retreat. Because one of the things I noticed is I had the same, like um, I went through the same phases every time. For the first 24 hours, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Right. I was like, I miss people. I get like, I like, I'm still in the busyness. Right. Then I start to like go into it. Like by like day three, like I'm, I'm calm. Right. And like, I'm in a new spot. And then by like day five, I'm in like crazy flow state. Right. It's just like getting there. Right. Like you have to like get there. And I think most people don't give themselves enough time to get there. They like, even if they try to be alone, they're still in that first 24 hour like bit, right? Like where they can get out of it. Right. And it's like not so fun. Like the first 24 hours, I'm like, I should call my friends. I should text everybody. Like, what am I doing? And then like by like, if you can really push past that, right? You push past that, there's like a mental clarity that I think you just get to. And like it's things bubble up, right? Like you, I, I I'm really curious about your experience, but, like all sorts of things bubble up. But by the end of it, you realize like. I think if anybody does this once, they're like, afterwards, they're like, how can we never, how do, why do people not do this more often, right? Like, it's just so obviously valuable. What was your experience with the, in the silent retreat? 
Yeah. So I, I will say it was like self-facilitated. I didn't like go to one of these ceremonial places. So it wasn't like true, true meditative, but right. It was like what I could access at the time. Um, and I paired it with a fast. It was my first like five day extended fast. Oh, so like I've read about you doing this. Yeah. You read about kind of like a duality of challenges, um, in and of themselves, but the silent retreat, I do, I do completely empathize with like that first day being very fidgety. Like I I'm not an anxious by nature person. I'm really not super fidgety and like neurotic, but when I like got dropped off and then the car left and like the first few hours, I legitimately like at the cabin I was staying at, I, I like sifted through every drawer in the entire house and like reorganized stuff and like opened and closed like cabinets, like empty cabinets. And I was like, I, I sat back down when I finished. I was like, what did I, why did I just do that? Like, there's nothing here. It's an empty cabin. I didn't bring anything like, but I think it was, yeah, just that nervous energy. Like we're clearly just constantly almost like vibrating or shaking. And then when you get into that true still space where the environment is no longer like humming, you kind of, you have to like settle essentially. Yeah. Why well, exactly? Like to your point, like it doesn't have to be like an organized retreat. You can literally just rent a cabin anywhere and like go just go do this. I feel like it's like a rite of passage that more people should be doing, right? It's like get to know yourself, right? Like who are you away from all the external influences, right? Like I always think I have certain interests. And then one of the things I do when I go to my house and just retreat is that like I'd be like, oh, I'm interested in all these things. And then like I would then free myself and my mind from any internal, you know, inputs. And I'd find that I'm really curious about all these random things I hadn't thought about for a long time, right? It's like in that freedom of thought, like new things emerged that wasn't wouldn't have been distracted away by like normal life. So it's just like, yeah, like you said, like you just rent a cab and you go for a few days and like you chill and like you you're you're quiet. Um, and, and I just think that that kind of stuff is really valuable. And like, was it life changing for you? Like I imagine it, like, I, I think I read, didn't you write like a post about this? Like, I think I read about it. Well, I appreciate you reading through the the thread I did. Um, it was interesting. I think part of it is when you have any expectation in life, like as a meta principle, you're, you're likely to be met with at least something different and likely something <laughs> below your expectation. Yeah. Um, and I think that partially because it was paired with the fast, the two challenges maybe interplayed in an interesting way where like you know a fast is physically difficult and if you have other stuff to distract you you're not focused on how hungry you are but i also had nothing to do and no other inputs so i was kind of just in a bit of a suffering state and then i also <laughs> i also went in hoping for you know like you're kind of almost alluding to like this spiritual like a divine revelation like some massive amount of clarity an angel visiting me whatever and unfortunately i can report that nothing like that happened but upon reflection and in that like last day, I do think, and I was like positively affirmed and maybe this is just like, you know, self-bias, it's whatever. I can't really remove that. But I do think that I was really empowered because I think that I created the space necessary for some sort of answer to come through. And the fact that no like massive redirection or pivot came through, it meant that I was likely doing a lot of the things right and I need to continue on this path. Or at least that's how I chose to receive it. Um, so that's me self-authoring, but like, that was my, I guess, answer that I got. Yeah, but I mean, this is the thing, it's like, you know, you can't chase, um, you know, spiritual revelation, but like, I think what you did, well, first of all, you said something like an unbelievably hard challenge, right? It's like, do both, like pick one, right? Like one of them is hard enough, right? To do both is, I think you're, so by setting yourself that challenge, right? Like you're also testing your own strength, right? Which is like another, like a thing about self-efficacy, right? Like you can, you can kind of test yourself, but you know, I don't think I would ever do them at the same time time but like just going and being alone like yeah you know but then it's even things like you pay more attention to what you eat because you're not you're alone like all these kind of things that like just come up but um 
Yeah, you can't force it. Like sometimes I notice like I will go for walks and sometimes I go for walks and I'm like, why don't I feel the ecstasy that I feel like 99% of the day? It's like, you can't, like, it doesn't come. Like you can't, it's like you said, like that you have to allow for space. Sometimes things work, sometimes they don't work. But if you set the intention and do them enough, you start to like figure out like here are little key like um, uh, leverages that I can like kind of pull. So I put my mind in different states. Like I know now, if I go for a really long walk and I mean like six miles plus, it will change my mood. Like not necessarily even for the better, but it will definitely change my mood into a new direction. That doesn't mean I necessarily come out of it as like, you know, glorious high integrity person. Sometimes by the end of it, I'm in a terrible mood and I'm like arguing with my boyfriend. But like still, it's like I understand that these changes happen and like new things can come to the surface. It's like it's about the process, right? Like you can't control the end goal of the process. You just have to let the process happen, right? So it's uh you know seeing beauty in that and as opposed to like chasing a chasing a goal for it so much like you just can't right like yeah and and that's another really hard duality to manage and i'm curious how you do uh you know i asked winston kind of the same type of thing like any sort of creative and I, and i honestly think like even in tech like we are creatives humans are creatures creations create like we are yeah. meant to create things and so naturally as creative beings um, we have to create space for that revelation, but like there's a really fine line, like the being doing duality of the artist. Cause like you go too far on one end of the just being and waiting to be struck, you'll be likely homeless and not really create much significant art. And then the other end of the spectrum is you look at somebody, maybe like a Picasso and it was something like he created a piece of art for like 73 years consecutively, like every day. And I don't know. I asked Winston about that. He brought up a really cool quote from Bukowski where it was from women. And he said, any fool can chase skirts. It takes discipline to sit in the writer's chair. So how for you, especially with things like writing or even just trying to create works that are eventually going to be received by the world, how do you balance like, I want to wait for inspiration, but I also know I need to take action. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard it's a hard project, especially when you have like deadlines and stuff, right? Like, you know, we worked on, Mike and I worked on, every angel is terrifying video like we could have waited there are so many other directions we could have gone to there are so many things that you know if we spent more time thinking about it that we could have added and done all this kind of stuff and like it's not like putting a hard limit on like your time is like necessarily good because like it can restrict you from having to flow state at all but like you know i i think one of the things i've realized is like i'm never going to be completely happy with something right like it's just like letting go of that right like for instance, why have I not done podcasts for the last few years? Because like every time I watch them, I'm just like, I'm really hate, like who likes their own voice? And like, I don't know, it's like weird, right? I think now I've just come to this other thing, which is other stage, like creation, right? Which is like, you can't hold everything to perfection, right? Like you put things out there and then you learn and you keep going and you make more things. Like I'm really glad that me and Mike put out the, every, the practice film. It inspired us maybe to do new films, right? Like, it doesn't have to all be in one film, right? I might do well on one podcast. I might not, not do well on, not, might not do great on others. Like you all just, you know, you have to tie yourself a little bit less to the outcome of it, right? And enjoy the process. And I feel the kind of same way about creative stuff. It's like I go and I make things, and sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. So I'd be like, oh, I shouldn't do these things because I'm not very good at it, right? Like I'll be like, and like people will say like, oh, you're a great writer. It's like, well, I haven't written anything for years. Like, why haven't I written anything for years? Like, because I read all my drafts and I'm so self-critical. I read them and I'm like, well, this is like, I don't want to put this out. And I go back and read my old stuff and I'm so embarrassed by it, right? Like, I don't know how people escape that. It's like, it's like just like one of the conditions of being human. But you have to detach yourself from it, from your own insecurity a little bit and just say like, 
you know, it's brought value to some people and like, you know, people, you know, it's not that it's not that necessarily you need external like validation, but to realize that if you're doing high integrity things, you're trying to spread beauty or trying to make things and you have good intentions, there's a lot of people who don't care and who also have bad intentions. So like the people who are so self-critical with good intentions, like need to quiet down that self-critic, right? Because like we have a duty to like put out beautiful things in the world. So it's like, sometimes I think about it more of like, what happens if I die, right? Like how if I found out I had a terminal illness or something like a year, I'd be so mad that I haven't published all of my writing right like it's like what am I waiting for to like figure out the answer it's like no I just have to say like a better way to handle it instead is to say like at the beginning of writing an essay like this is a according to my current levels of justification like this is what I currently believe and like to touch to free yourself a bit from like you know people putting you in a box or something like this so I, I they're like practice like, like theory versus action stuff it's something I battle with all the time like that's why I don't don't write enough but I I, I like memento mori right remember you will die like if you remember you will die like would it be better that like all your stuff was stuck in like google drafts like probably not like people will benefit from it um yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm smiling for those just listening I'm smiling ear to ear because uh I have memento mori tattooed on my arm and it's like the closer of this podcast because I do think that that razor of death yeah, uh, it makes life a lot. It can be very freeing. I think it is like the ultimate freedom if you choose with that frame. Yeah, and I, and I, I one of the things I like about the you know the memento, memento mori mindset, which is actually what I wrote in my. This is why we also I felt I was a good fit for this podcast with memento mori is what I wrote in my yearbook as my yearbook statement. Mm. I wrote I wrote memento mori, and 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 the reason why I wrote that was that actually if you go to like the um the some of the museums, I don't know if you've been to the VNA and in, in the Victorian Albert Museum in London, but like. If you look at old wedding rings, you know, like kind of 14th, 15th century wedding rings, actually they they engraved in the wedding rings um, memento mori. And it was like a thing to like remind people when they like went into a, like a marriage or into a union, that like you will die, like you should make the most, you should make the most of like time and like effort. Like if you hold that in your mind, right? Like that like your days will be numbered at one, one stage. Even though like, I want there to be increases in longevity. I don't want to get sick. Like these aren't like contradictory thoughts. You can both like, understand about death and also like want to further advance science right but like if i get hit by a car like science is not going to necessarily help me tomorrow right so when you start to think about that it's like it puts a little bit more of like an impetus on you right it's like actually produce and do things and i've always held this in my mind i actually think memento mori is a really romantic engagement ring right like what a beautiful thing to like like to be under that framework to be like you know like what's the point of arguing or like let's put things into context right let's let's really put it into context of what it means to like be alive and have life and as you get older you lose more people People, right like people around you die and you're like man like i wish that they'd done they'd done they'd been even more of themselves right they've given him more to the world like that's always like what i wish like anyone i like i lose anyone like i lost my father i was like i wish he'd given out more of his energy into the world right like we all need to put things out so yeah memento mori is a is a beautiful is a is kind of a beautiful concept to, to think about it. and again doesn't go against like being supportive of biology research right like it's and it and it goes to like a very first principles thing which is like finitude creates the value in and of itself like if there was just no end date to life like many people would end up in just like kind of a pure hedonic nihilistic side of the camp because also why would you do anything if you just had infinite time but that constraint that urgency and it go even goes to the creative process like if your life is your massive constraint then set a timer to start writing if you only have an hour to get out some art, you might be able to squeeze something out that's beautiful. Maybe you don't, but like if you did that on a consistent basis, write a page a day, whatever your constraint is, I think that, that that's how you can facilitate art in a meaningful way. And then when you look at your life 
macro, like this is your window. Like you got to hit, like write your page, give your gift. Yeah, no, that's something that I, you know, me and Dave Perel really bonded over as well, which is that like, you you don't have to set yourself like arbitrary deadlines to do stuff but i think reminding yourself like like life goes really fast like i mean how old are you now 20 did you say 24 how old are you 24 yeah yeah okay i'm 10 years older than you i swear to god like it went so fast right like i was 24 i was like writing drafts and i'm like 34 and those drafts are still there right it's like it's like it just goes really fast like it, it and i think as you get older it just gets even faster and faster and then the problem is as you get older the more and more responsibilities come up as well right so like you're always distracted doing other things and actually i think one of the joys of being in like in your 20s is that you haven't well you shouldn't i mean some people do but have as many responsibilities that like you should have some a little bit more free time to like go and write and be creative and explore new mediums of communication or like read more books and do more things right and I feel like that is like something that like people take for granted in their twenties, right? Like it's just something that happens, and like you don't want to be, you don't want to like. I put all my uh, like two Christmases ago, like I have my website now, like my like it's like hard to write, and I it's hardtowrite.com, and I put all my old blog posts, like the ones I was proud of, which is not all of them, but I put them all on like a centralized um, website. And I and if you look at the about me page for that, it says like. Hey, like I put all these hicks, I realized like I don't want to die one day and then so we'll be like in the cloud or like on Wayback Machine or like our internet archive because like the magazine has gone down, right? So it's like I want there to be a place where it's like, here's things that I've written that like, you know, like and I, I wrote a disclaimer, I was like, I don't stand by all my thoughts, but like I want to share them here. And like people read them, then you find friends, right? Like, and I think that's one of the great things about like writing and putting out content, right? You made this podcast, you wanted us to connect. Like I ended up watching the one with Winston and then we ended up like connecting. It's like, the more you put things out, the more you chance you have for serendipity and synchronicity to happen in weird ways, right? It's like, I put out my weird disease pathogen article and I ended up running like a biology conference and making all these new friends and a new field. It's like, you should see your creative tool, not as the, like, sorry, your creative output, not as actually necessarily as the end goal but it's a key to unlocking like a whole new world right like you put out a podcast you make meet all these new people you you like do all these things i put out an essay and like people will message me and say like hey i've been thinking about that like we should get coffee and it's like it's like uh, it's actually it's not it's not the end it's like the creative output is like the key to unlock something new in your life and when you see it like that then you it's like okay well between memento mori and the fact that like i want to go learn all these things about the world then we should be putting out way more stuff and I do think that especially as a young person, like anyone listening to this, it is a massive boost in self-confidence and self-esteem when you start to assemble some version of a body of work. Like that's one thing that almost by accident, like there was no forethought, like I can promise you that. But like looking back now, like this will be episode 60 of the podcast. I have no end date in sight because I just enjoy the conversation in the medium and I'm very excited by what it's producing in my life and the life of others. But I look back now and like that is a proper body of work, right? Like I can look at that with pride and that it's there. No one can take it away. Like those articles aren't leaving hard to write. Like you made those, they are there frozen in time for whoever until like the elites turn the internet off. So like it's cool as a young person. And I think like everyone should find their thing that they're at least okay with producing. Like you don't have to love it. You don't have to think your life is going to be this massive art pursuit, but like creating something that becomes a body of work over time is a massive way to assemble self-confidence, self-esteem, and like just general like pride in yourself, which I think is one of those things that backfills or boosts self-efficacy. Because then you look back and be like, well, I did that one, and then I did another one, and then I did another one. It's like, well, shit, I did 50 of those things. Who's to say I can't go build this other thing? Yeah, I know, you know, if people want to take like the first steps, like, I mean, I'm not ashamed of doing this, but when I first started writing philosophy when I was like, 
six I started putting things like, like philosophical content out when I was like 16 but for the first like eight years like I use pseudonyms and I'm not saying that like people can say that it's like cowardly and whatever but I think for some people it's a great entry point right it's like you're nervous and you want to like start putting things out there or you want to like it could even just be about like commenting in reddit right and like going into an industry or like going into like different things like the cool thing about the internet is like the world is your oyster and you can be pseudonymous and like when I first started writing my philosophy and it was like you know these are really weak views I just like wanted to I wanted to more like test like it's like it's like being on testnet right it's like instead of like putting it out on like mainnet it's like being on sepolia but not on eth but like you want to put things ideas out and you want to see what people's immediate feedback is like see where your blind spots are like it's not ready for like mass like like not not saying mass but maybe for like immediate network right you don't want to put something out there it's like just try doing things pseudonymously right then you get feedback and you learn you start to build up your confidence from like strangers right like and a bunch of my early philosophy was that like i published under like a like a weird like nobody has cracked it which is i'm actually quite impressed by it. but like i published everything under a pseudonym and then as i got older i found my voice right i started to find my voice i also like had this confidence of realizing that i already put things out there like you don't have to go all in like, like i'm never gonna be someone who like starts a podcast immediately like I, i'm the kind of person who has to start like a pseudonymous like philosophy blog right like but you can just choose your entry points so it's like even if you have low self-efficacy like make the stakes lower right like you can find a way it's like give something or like produce something for the world and like find your people but it doesn't have to necessarily be like you as like the star of the show like that's why I said you remember before we took this podcast I was like I really want to talk about ideas and not about myself because one of the things I noticed when you go on most podcasts is that everyone's like asking you about your life and like blah 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 but I'm like I want to be evaluated for, for my ideas, not for like the situations I've ended up in, right? Unless they're out of my own volition. So it's like the same thing for most people. Like if you want to, if you think you have interesting ideas, like go write about them. Start a pseudonymous Twitter, start a pseudonymous blog, like write things, right? And like see how it goes. And and, and it's a low, it's a much easier way to like just, just put yourself out there. Yeah. And I think we've seen almost like, I, I hesitate to call it a proper renaissance, but there's like a subculture of these and on kind of faceless accounts and theme pages yes. like we, we even have like a mutual connection i'm hoping to have him on the podcast like Solbra. um and then i already Love had that. homer helios like these characters who are choosing to like keep themselves faceless um but grow massive audiences like and arguably they're still entirely personal brands even though they aren't associated with a name but I'm, i can imagine like and i haven't obviously spoken to him specifically about this but like Going back to that first post, it does help a lot to maybe take your face away um, while you eventually build the potentially confidence or maybe it's just a direction you don't want to go to eventually put yourself out there. I do think that like I'm in the camp that vulnerability and authenticity like is the heaviest lever that you can pull. So if you can get yourself to the place where you put your name behind it and you share your pain, your experiences, like everything that you've gone through, you let other people be seen and heard through that. Um, but to whatever degree people feel comfortable, I think it's very important they do that for themselves. And then ultimately that becomes an expression for the world. Yeah, no. And it, it could also just be like, one of the reasons why people might want to do things pseudonymously is like, also could it be the case, like it goes, it's contrarian to their immediate network, right? Like maybe their immediate family wouldn't agree. Like I went to a really religious school. Like it's funny because like my arc, my arc and like religious and theolo theological thought is like completely 360. But I went to a really religious school and I didn't like feeling like, told to like pray and like do all these things and i started like anonymous blog when i was like 14 to discuss religious pressures at school and like i found all these friends right and it's like i don't think i could have done that in my own name because i would have gone into loads of trouble right but it's like it found a way for me to like go find like-minded people who were just like okay like i don't like being told what to do over here right so it's like 
for some people, it's a great way in. And like for other people, it's like, you know, another reason why like the soul browsers of this world and some of these Twitter accounts are synonymous is that like, you know, they're, they're doing things and like they want to be vulnerable for their thoughts, right? Like I said this sometimes, it's like, I do agree with you that being vulnerable and authentic and everything is 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 true and like is, is valuable. But like a lot of times, like the problem is this like new kind of um, reality TV kind of age, where like everything's so invasive, right? It's like, if you have ideas and like you try to, like people like, 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 like crucify people, like they like find other things in their past and they do stuff. Like I think that more people should just be like, you know, like everyone's done bad things in the past. Everyone has like not a full, like, you know, clean, background i'm sure i've you know said terrible things if you just search my twitter account for like three years right like everyone's like everyone's always so worried about getting cancelled right and i think your point is correct which is that if you have authenticity and integrity and vulnerability like you're not cancelable like who are you can be cancelable it's like i can defend anything i said and i like, explain it within context and but i think for some people if they've got some contrarian views or stuff like why not just start off at anon and find your voice and find your people and then start to emerge and like you know emerge from like the chrysalis i guess completely agree well, Riva, I think we could continue to do this all day. I know that you have a flight to catch, so I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but as you know from listening before, I have three closer questions that I ask every guest. So the first of the three is if you could go back to a younger version of yourself and tell her one thing, what would that be? Um, well, I got asked a similar question recently, and the answer I gave to myself was to be to be more more authentic and to be more fearless to the point of like, you know, posting your drafts and doing all these things. Like, I wish I hadn't held myself back. Like, I don't hold myself back that much, but I wish I'd leaned into everything even more. Like, you only regret it as you get older, to be honest. Like, your drafts become true, and then you're like, wow, I wish I'd posted them five years ago. So, yeah, I just be more fearless and be authentic, more authentically myself would be Amazing. one. The second is, as you know, I'm a big quote person. You are also a big quote person. So what is one quote that's always stuck with you or that you try to live by? Um, well, I have uh, a massive real quick quote written in my bedroom here, and it just says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Mm. I just think it's a great quote because it's like, you know, we can, something that we've gone over, like you can medicate away human emotion, but like you have to, you have to oscillate. So you have to understand like the lows to appreciate the highs. And like, I live with that quote in my bedroom, like let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful real line. Amazing. And then finally, what do you believe is your unique gift to give the world? What is my unique gift to give the world? Um, gosh. I, I really hope that like whatever, if I have any kind of legacy, like even in a, in a minimal way, like even in my immediate friends and family, but like, I really want to like this thing about, you know, um, finding joy in, in, in little details and living an ecstatic life. Right. And like, as I watch the world become much more online and, you know, uh, not, not paying attention to the running water anymore. Right. Like to, to our earlier conversation, I would hope that like if I have any kind of legacy and any kind of gift I want to give to the world is just that I I really, really love being alive. Like I literally made stickers saying this. I mean stickers saying I really, really love being alive and then stuck them on all my friends, right? It's just like it's like I just hope people realize like how cool and amazing it is to be alive and to get to experience things like good or bad. And I think like if there's any way I can communicate that, which is why I want to try and do more, you know, public facing things like 
it's it's something that I feel like a lot of people don't have. And it's just so it's like so obvious to me that I I, I would like to be able to spread it more and like and, and see people just realize like that being alive is such an amazing gift. And um and it's a every day is just like a massive adventure world of opportunity. Like if you start to realize it, right? So I think that I would like that to be my gift is probably the better answer. I can't imagine a more beautiful note to end on. Uh, Reva, it's been a pleasure. I hope you fly safely. Um, where can the people find you and what are you working on right now that you're excited about? Um, I'm on Twitter periodically, but I, like I'm trying to not be online so, so much all the time, but I, I am on Twitter. And then right now I'm just, I'm, I'm apart from writing philosophy and doing things and, and reading and thinking about history, I'm mainly focusing on crypto because I think that like the U US economy is fucked. So like, it's <laughs> Maybe a not so optimistic note to land on. Yeah, but, yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry. The US economy is fucked, but it's really great to be alive. It's like that. It's great to be alive. And uh, I'll have to stay stay in touch because I too am very concerned about the US economy. But for those <laughs> listening uh, that enjoyed this, you can follow along more of these. Uh, just search the Vitruvian podcast or my name, Zach Shankin, on YouTube. Uh, that'll be the call to action. Subscribe. It's been an amazing journey thus far. Excited for many more of these in the future. You can also follow me at ZDSCHENK on, on Twitter, Instagram. Message me on any of those. I love to discuss ideas clearly and uh, would love to hear from any of you guys. But Riva, it's been excellent. So thank you for this one. For those listening, thank you for spending your time and attention, your most valuable resources with both of us today. Memento Mori, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Vitruvian Podcast. And if he fails, at least fails while daring great, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat.